Okay, I'm recording now. Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. There's a lot of stuff to, to talk about today. There's always a lot of stuff. You know, yeah, I don't know if I totally agree with that, Brother Derek, because last week we only had one chapter to talk about, and yet that episode was well over an hour. So, I mean, you're right. There is always a lot to talk about, but even when we don't think there's a lot to talk about, we just find ourselves with a lot more to say. And last week it was one chapter. This week it is, what, seven? We're, we're on Genesis 6 through 11, and then we're going to be on Moses 8. So right. we have even more chapters to talk about today. I can only imagine how long the unedited version of this episode is going to be. So just be aware. Whatever we end up churning out is probably going to be a very incomplete conversation uh, that we would otherwise have. But hopefully we leave people with some better questions at the conclusion of, of, of this episode. But before we get into that, uh, there's a couple other th noteworthy things that have happened this week that we may want to discuss. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit, Derek? Right. So recently we've, we've had some high-profile queer folks in the, in the LDS world um, with some revelations. One of them is... Um, uh, did you read... Matthew, you Gong's said with some thing. revelations. What revelations? Yes. You still there, Derek? Yeah, I'm still here. What was your question? Oops. Hello. Sorry, lost you for a second. Okay. So we um, had some queer people with some revelations. revelations. Yes, you said we got some queer people with some revelations. Right, we had some queer people with some revelations, yes. So uh, Matthew Gong revealed a lot of the um, updates in his life. And then David Archuleta had this video. Did you see any of the video? I saw some of it, but I didn't watch all, uh, what was it, 52 minutes of it? Right, yeah. And yeah, then, I didn't see all of it just yet. So Peggy Fletcher Stack asked me for some reactions to the video. Okay. And then she quoted me in the Salt Lake Tribune. I don't even remember exactly what I said because I don't have it in front of me. But I think it's important to name some interesting things. When... Um, and. One of the questions people have is, oh, is, is stuff like this going to lead to change, right? And I've been thinking about this, and I one of the most important things is to empower and reframe the, um, the game, right? If the game is, okay, the leaders have control, and we are completely subject to their whim, and we have to beg them for change, we're buying into the fact that... Uh, that they have control over our, our dignity and our emotions, and we are dependent on them to do the right thing before we can feel good about ourselves. And I would just want to say that we should always try to flip that narrative around and say, look, we need to claim dignity on our own terms, and the leaders can join us. They, they can join us where we are if they want, or they, or they can't. They have their agency, right? Mm -hmm. But we should never 
make our depend make our dignity uh, and our sense of access to God dependent on them because we are outsourcing dignity. We are reinforcing the power structures that be, and um, that's kind of what's behind my point. And that's something that people don't seem to say. I think their first instinct is to say, well, let's just agitate and and make and get them to change it. And yes, we do need to do that too. But do you see the the what I'm trying to say? Um, I think so. Uh claiming dignity on your own terms. That is a beautiful idea. Let me just say that first and foremost. But it does have implications and I'm thinking specifically of what doing that will mean in terms of queer relationship with the church. Like if claiming my dignity means I'm sending to those in power, then what do we do with that? That's that's the immediate question to me. Um, discipline could be coming in claiming your dignity. And uh, this agitation piece means that we are expressing displeasure with the way the system is currently set up or to you know use the words you were using, the way the game is played, which would seem like we're still playing the game to an extent. So I think we need to hear a little bit more about why we still participate in this game and perhaps, uh, you know, what that looks like. Yeah. And I also wonder if a little bit has to do with redefining what a victory is. And I think some people will want to define a victory as, oh, we, we beg them for change and then they change and then we win. But is that really a win if we haven't even, uh, critiqued the power structures that we had to play that we had to participate in in order to achieve the justice of our people right on their terms so what what i want to do is sort of flip that backwards around as well and say that well kind of like i said earlier we um we should should keep the upper hand in saying, look, we're going to have dignity on our, on our terms because God is moving with us on the margins. That's where God is. And if the leaders want to get on board with that, they're going to have to come where we are rather than we have to be beg- we have to beg to be let into their institutions. Uh-huh. And I think going back to redefining what a win is goes back gets back to Christ, I think. I think for me, a win is, well, what about my character? Is my character being conformed more closely to Christ? If it is, then I win, right? Right. If it's not, then I don't win. And I think the tensions, the oppression, the injustice that we face leads us to want to define a win as, okay, we eliminate this, we dismantle the, the discrimination against LGBTQ folks. But yes, now that is part, that is definitely a goal. But that again is outsourcing the victory and, and redefining the victory as um, dependent on someone else. Whereas no matter what injustice happens to me, I do have some measure of choice and control over my reaction to it. And I do have a choice as to, am I going to react in a way that's Christ-like? Because no matter then what happens, um, if I am drawn more closely to Christ and my character conforms more closely to the image of Christ, then I win. I win, right? So I can win, Uh right, without having to wait for them. I can win without having to 
re-inscribe the power structure that they have set up. So that's kind of where I am. I don't know if I, that makes sense, but that's kind of where it I makes am sense. today. I do got a follow-up question, though, if you care to answer. Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, David Archuleta did make the choice. I, like, I think it was at near the end of his video where he said, I am choosing damnation by choosing, you know, to live authentically as himself. And we still got to wrestle with that particular part where he mm -hmm. says he's... Now, I know that whole uh, phrase, choosing damnation, already kind of, uh, you know, buys into the system that we are, you know, trying to you know, not acknowledge and right. not validate. Uh, but at the same time, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that he feels like he is choosing damnation. Like, uh, how do we work ourselves out of, um, I, I, I suppose, that mindset or that feeling or that uh, space in which we're in? Because like, I, I, I hear what you're saying and it's all well and good and everything, mm -hmm. but there still sounds like there needs to be work done to uh, get our minds out of that... Uh, you know, out of that conditioning, uh, that conditioning that tells us that we are choosing damnation when we simply choose to live more authentically and to live more like Christ. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, I think that I would just repeat what I've quoted a number of times from Rabbi B'nai Lapi is that we need to master the tradition or else the tradition will master us. We need to know the texts better, a thousand times better than those that would use them against us. To the point right. where David Archuleta wouldn't have to say that he's choosing right. damnation. I think that if he thoroughly in, interrogates the tradition and shakes every leaf of the tree, he will not find any basis for the damnation of LGBTQ people. It's unclear whether he's speaking, whether he actually believes that he's choosing damnation or is he sort of framing it in terms that people are familiar with like he he knows he's choosing what other people think will damn him i'm not sure what he means and maybe he doesn't even know what he means but he is okay. clearly choosing something that is condemned by the uh by the the majority of the group right and so he also uh -huh. is facing a social uh, condemnation as well correct but but yeah, I think you just have to look at the tradition and master the tradition, which is not fair. You shouldn't have to be a scholar of the languages and a scholar of the texts in order to make it from day to day as a member of the church. You shouldn't have to do that. Straight people don't have right. to do that. We right. shouldn't have to either. But um, for those of us who do want to navigate this environment, that is something that needs to be on the table as an option. And I think that once you um, shake every leaf of the tradition that we've inherited, you actually find a fuller, more vibrant um, Latter-day Saint tradition that there is inclusion for us. And I, that's what I love about Blair Ostler's work is that it's actually radically inclusive. When you look at sort of the pure Mormonism that... Well, there really is no such thing as pure Mormonism, I guess. But I was about to say, like, what what we see in in Joseph, right? This radically mm -hmm. open, breaking open the possibilities and throwing off the traditions of our fathers and being open to things that are new, being deeply rooted in the in the uh, Christian tradition, but radically open to new insights. And this whole. Um, idea of that we, we work line upon line. I've never understood the phrase 
um, Orthodox Mormon. Because we don't have an orthodoxy to be orthodox with respect to. Like we have teachings line upon line and different people are going to be on different lines. And we as a tradition as a whole are going to be on different lines in different decades, right? There is no Mm -hmm. fixed body of dogma. We're not Protestants. We're not Catholics. We don't have a fixed dogma that you are um, either orthodox with respect to or heretical with respect to. We're not, we don't carve it up like that. We are a covenant community rather than a uh, confession. You know, for our Protestant friends, a lot of them, it's just about do you believe the right things or not, and that is the only question you have to answer. doesn't matter where you got your authority. doesn't matter what ordinances you've had. Um, for many Protestants, all that matters is that you believe the right things. And that's not what our tradition is. Hmm. Um, we don't even have all the right things yet. It feels like that, though. It feels like we do? Like that we have a set of right things, quote-unquote, to believe. We have no um, official systematic theology. We have no official confession of faith that we— We don't have a magisterium. Um, well, we do have teaching authorities, right? Uh-huh. But we don't have it systematized into this is um, this is the list of true doctrine, this is the list of false doctrine. We don't have it collected in, for example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You, there's a, literally a book uh-huh. that will define all the stuff you're supposed to believe, and it will anathematize the stuff you're not supposed to believe. Mm-hmm. And we don't have anything like that. We have... Um, I'm I'm rambling on about something that's not even having to do no, with No, it's what fine. We're I just today. want I just wanted clarity. That's all. But my point is my point is how did this um Yeah, my point is that um how does it work to like we don't even have an orthodoxy. Like the the closest thing we have at all to any type of test of orthodoxy is actually the um temple recommend questions. But none of them get into specifics. Like, none of them say, well, do you believe in the historicity of the flood? Like, no, you don't have to believe in the historicity of the flood to be a member in good standing. It's not in the checklist. It's literally not there. Um, and we'll get into that. Well, let's start to talk about that then. Yeah, yeah. That is basically today's lesson. Uh, the flood, Babel, etc. It'll... It'll be an interesting thing to try to talk about. Are we good to move there, Dave? Yeah, Derek, let's move you... there then. Okay. So before we do, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So, uh, in the general, we're in Genesis 6 through 11 and Moses 8. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of material. Uh, We have genealogies. We have two stories, at least. Uh, We have additional uh, narrative. We have additional detail in Moses 8 about the Noah story. I didn't actually realize this until a couple of years ago that I don't know if you've seen this famous painting that we usually show the primary kids, Derek, but it's a picture mm-hmm. of Noah uh, telling people to repent before like the flood comes and like people are looking at him like he's crazy and he's like standing there with his arms up talking about 
why won't you guys listening? Why won't you guys listen to me? And I, you know, just barely realized that Noah as a prophet calling people to repentance isn't really a story we have in the in the Bible. It's a story that we right. have it's, in the Pearl of Great Price. Like Noah as a prophet, yada yada, like that's not part of the uh biblical narrative, really. So um we're gonna get into that, uh aspects of that story that tell that, you know, make us tell on ourselves a little bit. And there's also some questions that, you know, I have. I, I had a lot of questions coming into, or I guess coming away from the reading of this text. I, I wanted to know what the reason was that God wanted to destroy life in the first place, you know, and, and you know, not necessarily independent of. I'm just saying that there has been several other times where there have been wicked people on the earth and God did not destroy the whole earth because of them. You know what I'm saying? This is like... Mm-hmm an instance where God's just like, okay, wicked people on earth, forget it. Let's hit the reset button, start all over, kill everybody, nuke everything. Just, it's just an interesting, you know, narrative or something I wanted to interrogate. Uh, why is Noah singled out for survival? Why in the Genesis narrative, do we not have record of him negotiating with God or calling other people to repentance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then once we get to the Tower of Babel, like my big question there is why the whole project was sabotaged exactly. Um, you know, we have a lot of questionable uh, narratives in the past about why this uh, whole thing was sabotaged, what it meant for contemporary society, and you know all this other stuff. But anyway, those are my primary questions for today: uh, why the Tower of Babel was sabotaged, why did God want to destroy the Earth, why was Noah singled out. What was going mm-hmm. on in the earth that there was no negotiation, that there was no calls to repentance and, you know, all that other stuff. Uh, what about you? Do you have any questions that uh, you were looking to investigate as you read the text? Yeah, I probably have a lot of questions, but I think one of the uh, core insights of of religious wisdom is asking the right questions. And I think mm-hmm. the question, well, did this really happen? might not be the best question to start with because then it narrows you into looking for only one and only one thing in the text, mm-hmm. right? Looking at it as a newspaper record, is it true or not, right? And then is it, and then you, you layer on all sorts of assumptions about the, what the text is doing and what it's supposed to do and if it does or doesn't do what you think it should be doing, and then it will call into question the um, authority of the Bible as a whole, Right. Well, like if you start asking that question of did this really happen? That's probably not even what the what the original community that created and preserved this account. That's probably not even the first thing on their mind. Right. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that that's um, and I just want to back up and, and stop a step back and, and, and ask this. And, and part of the reason. Uh, gets back to. um what is the the faithful reading of the text? Because a lot of people, I don't know how, get this idea, and this is an assumption. It does not come from Mount Sinai. It does not come from God. It doesn't come from anywhere that I know of, that reading the Bible fundamentalistically is the more faithful reading, right? People say, oh, you got to believe it. you got to be true. If you don't believe it's true, then blah, blah, blah. But my theory is that reading the Bible fundamentalistically, like taking it as a literal uh, history when it's not supposed to be, 
is not a faithful reading of the text. It's actually anti-faith. Okay. Um, and let me just back up and explain some of these things. And so I'm really disorganized. Okay. I'm not even, I'm, I'm really disorganized today, but we'll see what happens. So why is the fundamentalistic reading of the text less faithful? The first reading is, I think, is that it wants to offload off all of the effort off of us. It's the, uh, it's the attitude that says, I don't need to do any work. I don't need to do any research. I don't need to look at the context, either the literary context or the historical context. I can just open my Bible and look it up like it's a phone number, right? A double-column reference book that I can just look up the answers that I already know anyway, right? That's a really disrespectful reading of the text because it's like saying, I don't need to do the work. I don't need to grow. I don't need to investigate. I don't need to wrestle with God. I don't need to wrestle with the text. I don't need to do anything. It's it's uh, and I it, it because it takes work to figure out well what what genre is this? It takes work to mm-hmm. figure out how is this functioning in the community that produced it? Is it answering mm-hmm. ancient questions or is it answering modern questions? Like it takes work. And if you don't want to do the work, that's not faithful. Right. Right to just say that anyone can spring open the text and read it out of context and, and get get some factual answer that that's a that's not faithful that's that's uh, whatever and the and the second reason i think that it's not faithful is that it doesn't respect god because if i say well i'm going to instead of given this marvelous kaleidoscope of different literary styles and different genres we've got poetry and parables and myth and legend and 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 love song we've got erotic love songs in the in the hebrew bible mm-hmm. we've mm-hmm. got um uh, genealogies we've got kings lists we've got all the, all different kinds and sorts we've got poetry there's a whole bunch of poetry a large percentage of the of the bible is poetry where you, it taps into image and emotion and it's not a newspaper account and i think to treat it as it is is basically telling god you gave us the wrong sort of book so we have to turn it into the right sort of book before we read it and use it and by the right sort of book i mean a newspaper like a historical newspaper record which is mm-hmm. not what it is right and to 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 treat it as though it is is to tell god to God's face, you gave us the wrong sort of book, and we're going to read it differently than the than the way you gave it to us. That's mm-hmm. not that's not faithful. That is rebellion, taking the Bible literalistically, fundamentalistically, and narrowly and woodenly in all places, as if it were all the same type of literature that you can just go and look up these answers. That is a very unfaithful reading to the text. Um, and then the third reason why it's unfaithful is because we have in Latter-day Revelation the idea that we need to learn out of the best books by study and by faith, mm-hmm. right? And I think when we look at the best books, like look at archaeology, look at anthropology, look at linguistics, look at biology, look at geology, look at all of the scientific uh, endeavors. Look at literary criticism. If you take every discipline and and bring it to bear on the question of did the flood actually happen, of course it did not happen. It just didn't happen. 
And to pretend that it did does great violence to the text and it does great violence to the intellectual tradition that God gave us. I think that mm -hmm. exploring the world is something we've been inspired and commanded to do. Mm -hmm. And if you distort, for example, biology or geology to make the flood story turn out historical, or if you distort linguistics and anthropology and history to make the Tower of Babel story turn out historical, like you have, you've betrayed the text. You've betrayed God. I know I'm using pretty strong language here, but I think I have to because it's like this text that I love so much, you miss the point if you use it only, um, uh, only, I, I remember talking to someone about some, some historical something in the Bible mm -hmm. and, and this individual was telling me, oh, you have to believe that the flood was historical because it's like, what? and I'm like, okay, when did you use the historicity of the flood today in your life? And that person was like, well, I didn't, right? I think when you make it just about bare history, you, you don't even, you don't, it doesn't even impact your life. It now mm -hmm. becomes, oh, this here is historical curiosity of like, we just know this fact about the ancient world that doesn't have any relevance. My point is, if you read it correctly, it has a lot of relevance. In fact, it even mm -hmm. has more relevance when you look at it in its mythic and literary context. Uh, mm. Now I've been talking a lot. What do you think about all of this? Is uh, I, do you think some of this, a lot of this, will be new to people who are raised Latter Day Saints? Most definitely, because we don't talk about the Garden of Eden as a story. There are implications to these um, other views on the historicity of the Garden of Eden story, and we just do not have the time to go into those today. Neither is that the purpose of today. But I agree, this is not something we talk about a bunch in the church, and therefore a conversation like the one we're having on the improbability of the Adam and Eve story happening at all, like what we're traditionally taught, that is going to be new to most Latter-day Saints, I believe. Right, and I think that's setting people up for a faith crisis. And it's also setting up people for a um, very fragile understanding of their faith because you can't go mm -hmm. more than two or three pages in, a, in an anthropology text or a geology text or a biology text or in any text and have your faith damaged if your faith was founded on some shaky sand. The historicity of the flood story or exactly, the creation right? story, like, you're in trouble. We've got records from china and from egypt that actually go through continuously through the 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 period where the flood allegedly happened right mm -hmm. like there's just so many ways that this is not true and i uh, we we're setting people up for failure if we gamble on them not finding out that certain things right and i, I just wish we wouldn't be afraid I love. I can't remember where I learned this, but I remember someone telling me that if we love something, we are willing to be surprised by it, right? Mm. Like if you marry your partner, you're never going to say, oh, I don't want to learn anything more about my partner. Everything that I need to know about my partner, I knew before my wedding day. No, if you, if you love your partner, you're going to grow. You're going to have to revise some things. You're going to have to learn some things. You're going to engage deeply and you're going to be willing to be surprised by someone you love right like oh i didn't know mm -hmm. you uh um I, I didn't know that you had a love for uh 
you know, whatever. I, I can't think of a good example, but pretend like you didn't know that someone was a tennis player. Oh, I didn't know that you liked tennis, right? Um, if we love something, we'll, we're willing to be surprised by it. And there's so many people who are not willing to be surprised by our scriptural tr- tradition. I am, right? But people say, no, we can't take it any other way. Like, we, we no surprises, right? And if we believe mm-hmm. in a God of ongoing covenant relationship and ongoing revelation, you had better be uh, open to surprise. Oh, absolutely. Like, if you're not open to surprise, your faith is going to crash real fast. Um, and I was thinking there's a lot of ways we could go with, with some of these things. Uh, we could look at comparing the flood narrative to the Babylon, the Babylonian flood narratives, um, mm. and, and sort of go point by point and see all the commonalities and see what the differences are and see what the, what the, uh, um, the Israelite community and sort of what did they change from these previous texts uh, tells you what their emphasis is because it says a lot about God. Uh, we could also look at the history of the text itself that we have in Genesis. Uh, we've got sources compiled together. But I was thinking a lot of those things would be best done in a written format because you need to like see a chart. You need to see the words. You You may need to actually compare these all. It might be hard to get all of this in a in a podcast format, but um, other than an, than an outline, I'm not going to go through all the details. Well, let me ask this then, Derek. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much, um, or rather, for the sake of the podcast then, do we want to talk about what this narrative is doing in there and perhaps uh, what we are supposed to, uh, what we're supposed to be learning from it, knowing that uh, this didn't happen? So what is it doing in our text? Do we want to talk about that? Yeah, I think we can. Um uh, and this gets back to the thing that I said I wasn't going to do, but I'll just briefly talk about some of the Babylonian sources. So the text we have in Genesis is not the world's only flood narrative. It may be um, dependent in a literary or oral way by uh, imitation or even by contrast with some of the Mesopotamian texts that we have today. We have... Uh, the Atrahasis epic, which is which has a flood that's very similar. Uh, there's the Gilgamesh epic, which also has Utnapishtim being the Noah character uh, who's saved with his wife and all the animals. And then um, the narrative about Ziusudra, which is our earliest, our Sumerian text uh, on, on the flood. And in all of these, you've got the Babylonian gods uh, getting fed up with humanity and deciding to flood the world, and then typically what happens is one of the gods sneaks off and tells a human. Uh, so the plot was to destroy all the humans uh, because they were making too much noise. Mm-hmm. And then uh, then you, you sneak off, and one of the gods secretly tells one person how to survive, and that person builds an ark, and the, there's a lot of parallels that I'm not going to get into, but it's, it's very similar. It's hard to deny that there is a common source to this or a common understanding. And then the gods uh, get terrified by their own, their, their own flood that they created. They're, they're like, uh, like a little bit out of control, can't really control the flood. And then they, what they realize is that the gods are hungry because there's no, uh, no humans to offer sacrifices. And so then later... 
the human gets out of the ark and offers sacrifices, and then the gods have nourishment again. And, um, and then there's a promise never to flood the world again. And so there's just a lot of parallels here. But where the contrast lies is the character of the God of Israel versus the character of the, the Babylonian gods. Because the God of Israel has uh, is more in control. We've got uh, we've got that piece of it. We also have an ethical uh, God. Well, I don't know if you considered the genocide of the entire world to be ethical, but you have at least a the portrayal of God as having an ethical reason rather than a capricious reason for just mm-hmm. destroying all of humanity. Um, and then I love, of course, the rainbow, the promise of the rainbow there. Um, and then I want to get into a, a little bit of the source criticism. And if you look at Genesis 6 through 9 carefully, you'll see doublets, you'll see contradictions, you'll see anachronisms, you'll see redundancies, you'll see seams, you'll see it's not a coherent uh, text. But if you take out um, some of these things, I, I just saw a chart of 15 things that are um, recounted twice in the flood narrative in Genesis in different ways. And and if you take those apart and sort of sort them, you actually get two relatively complete and coherent flood narratives that have been store, sort of stitched together uh, in the text that we have. And um, and I think that's important to notice. Well, there's human fingerprints on the text. Like someone came mm-hmm. and stitched these things together and didn't iron out all the wrinkles. Speaking of ironing out all the wrinkles, I have to tell you this is some of why I can't really get as into um, the Joseph Smith materials, like the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses, the Joseph Smith mm-hmm. translation. Like a lot of people will go to the Joseph Smith translation but there is a thoroughgoing editorial program that Joseph Smith had when he went through the text. It was to iron out all the wrinkles. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the examples is that in Genesis, God is the one that repents and regrets of, of making humanity. And then Joseph changes it to say, well, Noah regretted that, that God had made humanity, right? And so all yeah. of these little um, human fingerprints all of these things that you you get to wrestle with, all of these things that could be a nucleus of of um, heightened intrigue and investigation, like oh, I wonder what that means. I'm real curious about that. Like, what does this say? Like, a lot of that gets ironed out. A lot of the the life gets ironed out of the text when you look at the Joseph. And now this is what Joseph was doing for a particular context at a particular time. And that doesn't mean that it's in, inspired. He was sanitizing it for the purpose of uh, second great awakening revival type preaching, right? You want to build faith. You want to, mm-hmm. you want to have this clean source that will just, uh, just smack like you with cooperate. the gospel, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's that's what Joseph is doing, and it does it very well. And but that's not uh, what we want to do if we want to figure out how the Bible was functioning in its historical context, with all of its uh, complexity, all of the the weirdness, all of the everything. Um. Anyway, so that's kind of where I wanted to to talk about that. And I think so okay. much of the Bible, so much of how we we work with the Bible is about making meaning, 
Religion is about meaning making. So what do we do with the text? Um, yes. What do we do with uh, uh, the Tower of Babel narrative, right? What do we do? With, and here's what people have done with it. They've used it in service of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, the medieval rabbinic commentators uh, like uh, I think it's it's either Rashi or Maimonides. I'm forgetting right now. One of them said, well, the reason why the Tower of Babel narrative is in the Torah is because if it hadn't been there, people might think that we're all separate origin, that we all came from different places and we all have different languages, different cultures. And it's in there to prove that we all came from one place Mm -hmm. to unify humanity. Anyway, what do you think about all of these things and how should we use the text? What do we do with that? (laughs) <laughs> uh i still don't really know um i only have suppositions especially where this uh, story of babel is concerned I'm, I'm still wrestling with the implications of this uh story i haven't heard this particular interpretation though mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. that you just shared and i like it a lot but i've been conditioned to hear this story and to also hear the segregationists and apartheid theologians use this to justify racism and to condemn the arrogance of humans to try to force unity. But as we discussed last week, such a use of the text doesn't hold up to the grand story we are told in the Bible about the worth of souls, uh, about the worth of humanity, about the intention of God to save everybody, um, and, you know, about the divinity that is held Mm -hmm. and uh, in every human being. So this is obviously an improper exegesis of the text, and we have to read it differently. So one thing we have to remember, as we have discussed before, is the context in which this text was written. This is Mm. an oppressed people writing this text in exile under Babylonian power. This story is more likely a critique of the pretensions of the imperial power of Mesopotamia. Here in the text, we have the construction of the Tower of Babel under the direction of the text's first king slash emperor slash conqueror, whose name was Nimrod. And when we progress further in the text, we'll also see several critiques of of kingship, of conquering, of power over people and land. It's one of the more dominant mm-hmm. critiques that we actually see in the Hebrew Bible. But what the authors are doing here is critiquing a repeat of a story that we just barely saw in the Garden of Eden, where humans attempted to cross the boundary between the human and the divine. And humans Mm -hmm. are once again being thrown forcefully back into the human world, this time with uh, the diversifying of languages as the uh, the tool of doing as much. And this won't be the last time Mm -hmm. we see this story either. Like we only a few lessons into the new year and it feels like trespassing into the domain of the divine is a bit of a sticking point for the authors of these stories for reasons that make total sense Mm -hmm. for the context in which they are writing in. Uh, the, The people that are putting them in exile, the people that are enslaving them and oppressing them, they are assuming the role of the divine. And um, that that's that's a problem, but anyway, I also really like what you've brought in from the world of our of our Jewish siblings, uh, though as it's an interpretation I haven't considered, and it's uh, simple, it's it's uh, powerful, 
And it's a brilliant counter reading to the slave master's exegesis used to justify slavery and segregation. Yeah, I think it's important to read the text in conjunction with our Jewish siblings um, Mm -hmm. because they they'll they'll notice things that we didn't notice, Um, Mm -hmm. especially if you read the text in, in Hebrew. For example, the word Babel and the word Babylon are the same same word in Hebrew. It's Bavel. Like so, I don't mm-hmm. even know why it's trans translated one way when we're talking about um, this text and, and Babylon elsewhere. So I think the um, the so these par- resonances are are much more clear when you read it in those light uh, in the, in light of those things. All right. Um, I wanted to say something about. The rainbow, because everyone, we're going to be talking about the rainbow. <laughs> All right. right, the rainbow, just to remind people, the rainbow was the sign to Noah's progeny that, or, you know, Noah's, you know, descendants that he would not flood the earth again. Well, that's actually what I want to point out is that if you look very carefully, the rainbow is a sign to remind God of something so uh-huh. that uh the rainbow gets put in the sky so that uh when god sees the rainbow god remembers god's covenant not to flood the world again all right so the way i take this is the rainbow is a symbol that god loves to be held accountable to god's promises and i've said this before and this idea that we can't wrestle with god that we can't hold god accountable we should just stick a big rainbow on that and say no we can we can right we can cry out to God. I think there's a rich tra- tradition of psalms of lament. There's a lovely tradition of of wrestling with God, and that is it. it it's not anti faith, but it actually is pro faith because it takes more faith to wrestle with God because that means I know your character well enough to use it in in this in this debate. Right? I can I can hold God accountable to God's character, which means I trust God. I trust God's word. I trust that I know God's character well enough to hold God accountable to it. Yeah. And the same thing with wrestling with the text. I think it's more faithful to to have critical and post-critical readings of the text. Like I just don't know why it's uh seen as less faithful. It's it's to me it's more faithful, it's right? Uh, I mean, you do going, know why. <laughs> <laughs> you well, do know why, but it just doesn't make sense to you. Well, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, maybe it's easier, but who says who why is faith taking the easy way? Like I love the the Syrophoenician woman because in the uh at least in Matthew's version, Matthew 15, Jesus praises her faith, saying, "Wow, I, you know, such great faith is what what here and and in what was but the what faith? does he praise? He praises her faith because what does she do? She argues back. She argued she with Jesus, argues bro. With Jesus, right? Yeah. And I love how Mary, the mother of Jesus, argued with Jesus in John chapter two. That was faith. Jesus says, "Whoops, mm. nope, nope, mom, I'm not going to do it right now. I'm not ready. My time has not yet come." And she just says to the servants. She like well, ignores Jesus. Yeah, they just talks she, to the servants. She arranges it so that he, he she arranges it so that he has to do something. Mm-hmm. She says, "Well, whatever he tells you, go do it." Right? She doesn't even listen to his his protestation that his time has not yet come, and and you know maybe his time hasn't come, but then she made it come. 
right? She changed it. She altered the path, which is another reason why we can't be orthodox, right? There's no Mm -hmm. fixed orthodoxy to be orthodox to within our tradition because God can change, right? Um, Or at least God in God's relationship with us. There's this dialectical relationship, which is a back and forth. Mm -hmm. And we ask for things and we get them, or we don't ask for things and we don't get them. And and some of that is uh, uh, very clear that... um, uh, well, anyway, let's go back to something else about this flood narrative that I mm-hmm. that uh, Rashi said. And Rashi said that the people of the wickedness were so wicked that when the flood, when the uh, when the great fountains of the deep opened up, right, and all this water was gushing out, mm-hmm. the parents would use their living children as a cork to try to plug up the inevitable chaos that was was uh, arising. And isn't that just so sick? That yeah, parents would, would use their own children to try to restore order to the world and plug up the, plug up the, uh, the fountains. It didn't work, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, that just reminds me a lot of homophobic parents. They are, mm. they would throw their kids under the bus in order to Into restore order to the world, and it's not mm. going to work. Okay, uh, it's just so sick how how people um, treat their, their 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 LGBTQ loved ones. It's just it's just awful, right? It is the one of the worst wickednesses, and that is uh, the wickedness. Now, why why did God destroy the world? And the, the Hebrew word is Hamas, a, a violence, right? This, mm-hmm. The violence and bloodshed among people. This type of wickedness is what, uh, what Genesis says is the reason that God needed to press the restart button like it's a computer, right? That's what I do. Right. If something goes wrong on my computer, I'm like, I can't fix this. I'm just going to press the little reset button or I'm going to restart mm-hmm. it. But does this actually work? Does the text succeed in eliminating violence? And the answer is no. It didn't mm-hmm. work. And does God try to use violence to solve violence? And it appears that the answer is yes. This is me, like, eagerly and faithfully wrestling with the text. Here we have God portrayed as genociding the, in, in the entire world except for eight people, using violence to solve violence rather than using a um, what I would see as a cruciform model of, of taking on the suffering of the world— um, and transforming it through a, the noble, nonviolent, loving example. That is actually what solves violence. And we see this in the Book of Mormon narrative in 4th Nephi, that that is what actually brings peace and, and nonviolence to the world. That's what brings a Zion people to the world. Um, so how do you wrestle with the fact that God appears to, to just violently kill everyone rather than... Um, and that's why I'm so so mad about Noah not urging the people to repent. And of course, Joseph fixed this, right? Mm-hmm. Joseph fixes this, and, and and short circuits the discussion that we would have had by just saying, "Well, Noah was a prophet and told people to repent, and they didn't." Right? That just right. that ends the conversation for me mm-hmm. that we would have had if we look at the biblical text and wonder, well, what, why didn't Noah cry out? Kind of like yeah. for those of you that weren't here last week, go listen to last week's where I talked about the Midrash 
where Noah gets uh, criticized by God after the flood. And God said, well, why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you demand? I think Noah could have stopped the flood if Noah would have said, hey, you know what, God, I'm not going to build the ark. Because um, I'm going to sort of put my life on the line and say, well, if you flood the world, you're going to kill me too. And you can't kill me, so don't flood the world. That would have stopped the flood enough for uh, people to repent. And uh, anyway, I've been rambling on a lot. What are your thoughts? Well, first, let me just uh, acknowledge that there are going to be more negotiations in the text from here on Mm -hmm. out. Um, You know, when the Lord is about Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. act in a... I mean, when he's about to destroy a city or do anything else that's large or smite people, there's usually a negotiation with the prophet somehow. Um, so we're going to see that a lot more in the text right. going going from here on out. I've also been enjoying these editorial contributions by Joseph Smith in the form of the Pearl of Great Price. I feel like there's a lot that is relevant in here to us and that provides a lot of uh, valuable lessons for the saints. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about one that I see in the text here. This is going to be chapter 8, sorry, Moses chapter 8, verse uh, 21 and 22. And uh, this is an interesting dialogue that follows after Noah calls uh, his people to repent, starting in verse 21. And also after that they had heard him, they came up before him saying, Behold, we are the sons of God. Have we not taken unto ourselves the daughters of men? And are we not eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? And our wives bear unto us children, and the same are mighty men, which are like unto men of old, men of great renown. And they hearkened not unto the words of Noah. And God saw that the wickedness of men had become great Mm -hmm. in the earth, and every man was lifted up in the imagination of the thoughts of his heart being only evil continually. So the question I want to ask does this ever sound like us, mm-hmm. where we believe that because we have gotten married, had kids, raised those kids to be mighty by whatever standard that is, whether it be according to the standards of men of old or whatever else, does it ever occur to us that we have, does it ever seem like we have nothing else to worry about? Does this sound like a trap we can fall in where we place a high value on certain metrics, but then neglect other parts of the law to the point where the Lord can't receive us. And in this particular extreme example, he's ready to end our existences. Like, as a church, can we see ourselves in this? Considering we Mm -hmm. are a church that places a lot of emphasis on families, we sound a lot like the people that Noah's talking to. As, As we extol the virtues of getting married and having and raising kids, might there be other parts of the law that were missing completely to the point of God not being able to fully receive us unto himself? I, I do want to suggest that our focus on families may mm-hmm. have caused us ne- to neglect greater parts of the law. Our focus on raising children to be like, you know, men of old, like the Joseph Smiths, the Brigham Youngs, the Marky Petersons, like perhaps trying Mm -hmm. to raise our children to be like those folks or, you know, putting a lot of focus on marriage. I I feel like that focus can cause us to neglect greater parts of the law, especially where our queer siblings are concerned. And perhaps what we can learn from these verses 
in which the people refuse to listen to Noah because of their identities as children of God and their marriages and their families, is that this focus on family is not going to save us. It will not excuse us from our wickedness. The wickedness and corruption of the people of Noah isn't really specified, but one of the biggest hints we get as Mm -hmm. to their sins is in what ultimately saves Noah, a trait that is translated in uh, Genesis and uh, Moses as righteousness, and it is translated from the Hebrew word tzedakah, T-Z-E-D-A-K-A-H, a word that could also be translated as justice, and the root of the word is justice. That adds a whole nother dimension to this conversation and a dimension I feel is directly analogous to the situation we find ourselves in today in the church. All this emphasis we put on families and yet queer folks do not yet have justice. I do believe there is value in getting married and in raising strong kids, but these people were clearly still and probably most glaringly without Mm -hmm. a sense of justice that ended up being their undoing. I'm just going to say that I feel like this is us. God ain't gonna drown us because, you know, he promised he would never do that again, but I feel like we can learn a lot from this story about how much focusing on families is gonna save us if we don't do as Micah 6 verse 8 commands and do justice. Justice seems to have saved Noah, and it could have saved, um, you know, the rest of the people that he was preaching to if they repented. And I think this will save us too if we repent of the justice that we deny to the queer community and other folks on the margins. I think this could be just as much a cautionary tale to us as anything else. The people of Noah, they thought they was all right because, you know, they focused on their families, because, you know, they got married, because they had kids and raised strong kids. But they, I don't, I don't believe they did justice according to that which saved Noah. I think we can learn from this. And that if we do justice, we can save ourselves from a similar fate, um, you know, that the people of Noah ultimately faced. Yeah, I think that I read this through the light of um, it's it's likely that this text here is dependent on the Matthew 24 uh, discourse where Jesus is saying that as it as in the days uh, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And he's uh, Jesus here is talking about sort of the suddenness of the flood that they were they didn't they didn't know it was coming and and they were just doing normal things. They were eating and drink- not not that eating and drinking and marrying is good or bad. It's just human activity. Right. And so I think that is the substance of what Jesus is using that imagery for. Now, I'm not sure exactly what Joseph is doing here, if he's commenting on whether the eating and drinking and marrying are bad or good. Um, but it looks like the uh, um, the people of Noah's time were trusting in those things and mm-hmm. as a reason why they shouldn't be worried. Right. Yeah. So that's... That, that gets back to the heart of the gospel is what is it that you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your own endeavors? Because that's exactly what the, the, the Tower of Babel people were doing is they were like, ooh, let's us build a tower to heaven, right? And how many of us do that in the Latter-day Saint world with the temple, right? Oh, I'm all set. I can build this temple and I can do these ordinances and I can— I can force God to keep my family together forever. Like, is that really what you're thinking the temple is about? Because you missed the whole point of Jesus's life. If if you think that our temple ceremonies are just ways that we magically force God into tricking God into keeping us together, 
Mm, I've said this I didn't before. Think about that. What is the priority? Is the priority Jesus or is the priority your family? Like, are you using Jesus just as a tool to to serve your family and keep your family together, or are you using your family as a means by which to serve and glorify Christ? I am one hundred percent on board with. Uh, well, I forgot which one I said first, but the one that glorifies Christ. There's some people that, t- for them, Jesus is only part of the package deal of the whole Latter-day Saint machine, right? That's just the, well, the atonement's that little detail in there that lets me see Grandma again, right? And the whole point is to see Grandma again. The whole point is to have these heterosexual eternal families that everyone must bow down to. And Jesus is just a necessary part of the code that part of the program or part of the whatever that we just used him to get to where to, to get our family together right and then we could throw Jesus away once we've gotten what we wanted like no 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 that is not at all what the new testament teaches the new testament teaches a very different understanding of family and yes families exist but the point of the families is to glorify and focus on Christ and and uh yeah I just, it it's, it bugs me that people read into our Latter-day Saint sources cultural stuff that isn't even in uh, our tradition. Right. Right? And um, I, I wish I didn't have to talk about homophobia all the time. I wish I didn't have to address these things. But every week goes by and, um, and uh, yeah. We should should do something about that. About to say, if nothing changes, so long as it still exists, so long as it's still a problem, so long as it still gets in the way of mm-hmm. your ability to worship the way you want to, and the way of other people to live full and abundant lives the way straight people get to, I mean, I would I don't blame you for talking about it. It makes perfect sense, and I resonate very much with. I wish I didn't have to talk about this all the time, but mm-hmm. look at this situation that we're in. Um, I was just telling. You know, I was just telling some people the other day, I wish I didn't have to talk about this stuff all the time. Like, I don't do this because, you know, I'm a race baiter or something like that. I I don't want to talk about this stuff. It's exhausting. I'd much rather be like, you know, chilling, watching anime, playing video games, all this other stuff that I could be doing. But like, I got to talk about this stuff because it has an effect on my life. It has an effect on the lives of people that I love. It gets in the Mm -hmm. way of my ability Mm -hmm. to worship the way that I ought to be able to worship. It gets in the way of my ability to live a full and abundant life. There's just too many things at stake for us to not talk about this. Mm -hmm. And um, that just is what it is. So I I just want to say that to validate, you know, your feeling the need to talk about this stuff every week, because at the end of the day, this is, this is your life that, that we're talking about. This is the life of, you know, many of our brothers and sisters and Mm -hmm. I mean, our siblings that are directly affected by this. So talk about it until it gets fixed, you know, talk about it until the greatest things that, you know, we have to argue about or talk about are where the sort of Laban is, you know, when we get to that point again, where that is actually a valid conversation. I think we will have done a good job. I think we will have done good. So that's probably a good place to close. Well, before we go ahead and wrap up, I want to remind you guys that dialogue adjourn, a journal of Mormon thought is proud to offer a new podcast partner called the fireside podcast with Blair Hodges. It features in-depth interviews about religion and culture, featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you are spiritual, but not religious or religious, but not spiritual or something else entirely, there is a seat saved for you at fireside. 
Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Instagram and face and Twitter at btblds, and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Beyond the Block, and you can also find uh, James's course on anti-racism one hundred and one, uh, or what? What was it called again? LDS anti-racism one hundred and one. Yes, LDS anti-racism one hundred and one. And where can they find that? They can find that on our website drop-down menu. They can okay. find that in our bio on Instagram, or you can simply go to btbacademy.thinkific.com. That is awesome. btbacademy.thinkific.com. It's the BTB Academy because my course isn't going to be the only one there forever. Eventually, we'll have yeah, a Derek course. I, I hear that. Yep, I can tell <laughs> that yes. you you've arranged that. So that I have thought ahead. Right. I am okay. waiting for this Derek course. Give the people what they want, man. Give the people what they want. Also, uh, a, spe- a quick special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Also, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media. And, of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. Uh, Stephanie Peterson, Mary Galavanez. Uh, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines are also including the Faithful Feminist episodes and Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can have that uh, one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me studies. Uh, You can find a link to the outlines in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Also, btboutlines, or sorry, tinyurl.com slash btboutlines. Uh, same goes for our transcripts, by the way. Those are also in the drop-down menu, also in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I think that is everything. Is there anything else we got to put the people on to, Derek? I think that's it. Very oh, good. By the time this comes out, it will be Black History Month. Oh, snap. That's right. It'll be... Yeah. Black History Month is around the corner. Um, so be prepared for that. And and the, the most important thing is Black History Every Month. Every month. Every month. Yeah. yeah. Black History Every Month. Also, y'all, uh, in preparation for Black History Month, I don't know what y'all be doing out here, but my calendar is already filling up for events. So if you're trying to you know, get somebody to speak at your book club or your fireside or something else like that, mm-hmm. I'm just letting y'all know right now my calendar is filling up. So get at me sooner than later. That is all. Well, that's all, folks. That is all. Till we meet again next week. Okay, bye.